No me vaya a escribir ni a hacer llamadas. Nada de comunicación. Yo la llamo a usted de minutero en adelante. Don't text or call me. No comms at all from now on. I will call you from paid cell phones on the street. A line of a man who knew he was being watched, but too late. This statement, which was being relayed to his business partners, bodyguards, accountant, and so on, had been intercepted by law enforcement. These words were not uttered by our main protagonist, Otoniel. Now, these words were spoken by one of his money men, Juan Freddy Zapata Garzon, alias Messi. On the 10 different lines that were being monitored, the police learned that Messi had sent his bodyguards for further weapons training. He was having chest pains and other medical issues, but they also listened in to plans which explained the income of one of their companies, which apparently involved planting Hass avocados. I met with officials from the embassy. They are here to export Hass avocados to Japan. They are important business people from Tokyo specifically. And he wasn't done there. Another intercept revealed connections with government officials involved in awarding public contracts. They have a bidding firm and government contracts. She wins a lot of bids but is currently illiquid and asked whether you had a friend to become partners. This is a sure thing because it's with the government. It seems that Messi had his hands in a lot of different pies. But that was about to come to a swift end. In early 2021, Colombian law enforcement launched a coordinated operation across the country against Clan del Golfo. They made 181 arrests. Messi was one of them. Permitió la captura de John Freddy Zapata Garzón, alias Messi o Candado, principal cabecilla de una organización de narcotráfico y lavado de activos asociada al grupo armado organizado Clan del Golfo. According to a senior law enforcement officer, Messi ran a narco trafficking and money laundering organization associated with Clan del Golfo, using shell companies, investments, real estate, and personal properties he was able to build a vast money laundering network for Clan del Golfo. Welcome to Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers, and this is Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel. Part 2. Don't text or call me. At the end of the last episode, we left Otoniel in sole charge of Clan del Golfo after the death of his brother, Giovanni. And this podcast is about Otoniel and the organised criminal group that he led for so long. But as part of that story, we have to look at Clan del Golfo in more detail through the illicit markets that they're involved in. And there are quite a few of those, so we're going to start by looking at this through the eyes of Zapata Garzon, or Messi and we'll be using his alias in this episode. This was a man involved in drug trafficking, money laundering, and political corruption, a senior figure in Clan del Golfo. So given what we learn about Clan del Golfo in the first episode and its role in cocaine trafficking, that's probably the best place to start. Now, remember Otoniel's early beginnings, that his life in the paramilitaries actually started with a left-wing guerrilla movement, the EPL, 
who openly used the drug trade to finance their operations. Fast forward to the creation of Clandel Golfo and control of the cocaine trade was paramount to their existence. Over time, Messi worked with Clandel Golfo, where one of his responsibilities was facilitating the shipment of cocaine. In the autumn of 2018 alone, he was reported to have shipped approximately 4,500 kilograms of cocaine. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, the infamous Medellin and Cali cartels controlled the production, trafficking and distribution networks of cocaine. But after the destruction of these organisations, this changed and the Mexican cartels began to rise. Here's Toby Muse, foreign correspondent and author of Kilo, Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels. Cocaine is capitalism. So it's constantly, just like any industry, it's constantly refining, it's constantly evolving in front of our eyes. It's like this organism that just learns. Every time it takes a hit, it learns what it did wrong in order to be ready for the next time, to be leaner, faster, more efficient. So I think it became a kind of normal business decision. You send two tons of cocaine and you try and get it to Miami, you lose those two tons of cocaine, you're out a lot of money. The upside, there may be a greater reward if you do get it to Miami, but if you just get it to Mexico, it's much more safe and you just can almost guarantee that that money is going to arrive to you. And you're still making fantastic amounts of money. I think the price of a kilo of cocaine in Mexico is $10,000, if I'm not wrong. But the price of a kilo of cocaine in Colombia is $1,600. So yes, you will make more money in Miami, in New York, but the risks are that much bigger. And we'll hear more from Toby in the final episode. Although the Colombian cartels were replaced by the Mexican cartels, they still played a major role in the global supply chain of cocaine. They have connections all over the world. Some traffickers were known to visit Otoniel in the depths of the jungle in Uruba to discuss business. Late last year, the director of the National Police in Colombia, General Jorge Luis Vargas, told journalists that Clan del Golfo trafficked drugs for the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, the Sinaloa Cartel, the Calabrese Mafia, the Cosa Nostra and Balkan networks, and that cocaine had been sent to at least 28 countries, like the US, the UK and most of Europe. Indeed, the news website El Tiempo reported that Messi, our drug trafficking money launderer helped move tons of cocaine from the ports of Uruba to Spain, Belgium, Amsterdam, Germany, and even Iran. And according to General Vargas, they also had connections in China, Australia, and the UAE. Clan del Golfo are truly a transnational organized criminal network. Now, we could fill an entire series of podcasts on the logistics of how cocaine is moved around the world. Container ships, flights, light aircraft, land routes, speedboats, and so on. But that's not this story. There is a paper from the GI called Cocaine Pipeline to Europe, and that has a lot of detail on this, including some really good maps, and you can find a link to that paper in the podcast notes. What I want to talk about is how Clan del Golfo got that dirty cocaine money back into Colombia. 
So let's look at some of the ways this is done. And the best place to start is to say that we need to realize that different illicit economies are all connected and intertwined. When we talk about narcotics or illegal gold mining, or when we're talking about uh, contraband or counterfeiting, I mean, it looks like different economies. It looks like different different crimes. But it, when when we follow the, the economic, I mean, the economic flows of those, we will observe that there's a huge connection. This is Daniel Rico, an economist and director of C Analysis in Colombia, a company that worked with applied criminology, and he's a member of the GI network. When narcotics are going out, the way they bring the money back, it's using contraband, for example, or gold mining. There's all this, it looks like different, I would say like different trees in a, in a forest, but in the ground, all the roots are deeply connected. And so answering that is like, you will see that different criminal groups in Colombia, insurgencies, or I mean, the groups that came from the paramilitary organizations, or those that are more focused on narcotics, all of them share the same roots in order to move the, the, the money. So my main conclusion will say, like, we have to observe that each of those groups doesn't have one unique business or one unique source of income or one unique way to laundry the money. There are multiple connections between them and in the different criminal economies. So with that in mind, Daniel said that Colombia is producing three times more cocaine than six or seven years ago, which is a huge expansion. And as a result, the narcotics economy is pushing and driving other parts of the economy, including contraband. Now, do you remember in the first episode when we spoke about the structure of Clan del Golfo? They aren't a vertical organization. Instead, they operate a more fluid, almost franchise-type system, very different from previous cartels like Medellin or Cali. So it's very important to understand that the Clan del Golfo is a unique type of criminal organization. They are highly specialized. They have, like, each unit in this uh, chain of criminal activities has a level of independence. They work with other organizations. They are more collaborative than competitors. And um, they provide especially the services of controlling an, 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 a key area of the country. So they can move out cocaine, but they also can bring in contraband and money. So what, what I have interviewed it's, uh, and, and people in, in, in prisons and talking to attorneys and police is that the money laundry is a very important aspect for them. I mean, they provide service of money laundry. So, I mean, they provide the full service of narcotics. So, so one, one group of one client that is uh, expecting to move, let's say, one ton of cocaine to Central America, they provide the service of moving up the cocaine for them, but also to collect the money from this cocaine and bring it back and also provide a very basic service of, of, of money laundry. I will say there's more contraband of, of currency or, or, or provide a, a service of bringing a contraband products cigarettes, textiles, shoes, or I mean, you name it. So, so Clando Golfo is, is, is highly, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's highly integrated in the terms of the service they provide for other narcos and other investors uh, on it. I mean, how uh, Clando Golfo is, has a span and has be, became very, very stable and powerful is that they minimize the risk. I mean, they, they, don't, they work with others' individuals' money. I mean, they get a profit on the cocaine they move, 
and they also move their own cocaine, but but especially they provide services to multiple organizations. So so they don't they have a diversified portfolio of clients and and people that provide a contribution to the organization. Clan del Golfo's ability to control large sections of the cocaine market, including trafficking drugs for other organizations, earned them a lot of dirty money. And that money needs to be cleaned before it can be enjoyed. And to help with that laundering process, you need a network of corrupt officials. Well, they play in different scale. I mean, they play at the high level with commanders of the police, especially. I mean, they have Clan del Golfo has highly been connected with the police for many years. And I mean, they, 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 they don't go for the low level. They go for the high level and they are able to just manage the career of a high-level official for many years and get access to information or make some type of arrangement. So the, 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 this group of police will attack the competitors and, and that's one level of corruption. But there's also le- another level of corruption that is more getting involved in local politics. And our guy Messi was accused of this very thing. According to the US Department of the Treasury, Messi provided campaign support and funding to mayoral candidates in several municipalities in Colombia. By doing this, El Tiempo said that once those finance candidates are in place, they can get government contracts and then launder illicit money through them. I mean, they provide money to the uh, candidates and elections for the parliament's governors or local majors in the municipalities. And we have a strong evidence that they have provided money for presidential campaigns. So that's the other side of the corruption. And what, what, why, why they do that? First, they want to get, take advantage of political decisions, that's true, but also they get also a high interest in using uh, companies to launder money with public contracts. So I would say it's, it's, it's very important is that they have multiple points of contact with corruption. I mean, the links are, are, are very, very relevant. So also they, with the custom office, I mean, what we observe is that they have a strong in, involvement and, and, and I mean, they, they, they have access to key players in the, in the custom borders offices and as well as they, they manage uh, lawyers and attorneys. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an, a very, very important network of corruption that is not only paying for the police, it's, they are paying for many benefits they obtain from the government. And so once you have your corrupt network in place, you can export and import, which means it's time to bring that money back. So let's explore some of the ways this can be done. First, we have trade-based money laundering, and there are quite a few techniques of this. So you've got things like over and under invoicing, ghost shipping, shell companies, multiple invoicing, overall short shipping goods, and then finally, black market trades, sometimes called the black market peso exchange. Whatever the technique used, this is a really effective method of cleaning that dirty drug money. Yeah, it's important for some organizations. I mean, some of them decide that they they use trade, as, especially from cigarettes, textiles, electronics, and it's it's it's, it's very profitable. What 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 is it's important to say that is that money laundry is a is a service, it's a cost. I mean, somebody that has one million dollars and, and and wants it to get it clean. As uh, money laundry services can cost between 10 and 25% of that money. But when they use contraband and when they use trade, like uh, let's say it's cigarettes, uh, what will happen is that that cost become positive. It means that with the same money, the same million dollars, they can buy 
container of cigarettes, and when they sell it in Colombia, they will multiply the income by five. So, so the connection between international trade contraband and money laundry, it's important because it's, it's an additional business, it's an additional profit in the process, greater than a cost. Now, when Messi was arrested, he was indicted along with three others and four entities, which were all used to launder drug money. Front companies that dealt in construction, hotels, petrol stations, real estate, and even livestock. According to El Tiempo, he also got involved in the music business and purchased sports rights for football players. And of course, the obvious things like luxury cars and watches. But it can't all be spent on luxury items. Some has to enter the legitimate financial system. And there are a number of jurisdictions and banks that have laundered money for criminal groups over the years. For example, countries like Panama, just across the border from Clan del Golfo's heartland of Uruba, the banking secrecy laws and use of offshore companies have made it attractive to organized crime. But in recent years, there has been a change. I will say that what surprised me in the last four or five years is how much connections has the money laundry network had with the United States. I mean, in the past, when we talk about money laundry and our neighbors, we were thinking about Panama. But, I mean, Panama has took some restrictions, has uh, improved the law, and what can be observed is that those shell companies or, or offshore companies are moving to Delaware and moving to Florida. So more and more often we, we observe that the financial system in the United States is getting involved in those transactions, contraband and, and, and money. That doesn't go directly to Colombia. Sometimes they just move to the United States to China and from China back to Colombia or things like that in terms of contraband. But I will focus, I mean, the, the, the usual suspect are is Panama, but uh, I believe the uh, United States is very important, as well as Costa Rica. And those are the, the key players in terms of moving, moving money. Another way money is laundered won't be a surprise to anyone living in cities like Miami, London, or Vancouver. But it happens all over the world, including Colombia, and that's real estate. The Directorate of Criminal Investigation and Interpol, who led the investigation into Messi, said that he was involved in real estate, which was seized upon his arrest, including two large haciendas. There are so many negative outcomes by this practice of money laundering, it would require, again, a completely separate episode. But during my interview with Daniel, he told me this really interesting story about when he was on a panel discussion and one of the other guests was a senior official. And they were talking about this issue. The government officials said that there was no money laundering. There was no risk that the Colombian real estate business had connections with money laundering. They, they, they really want to believe that there's not a problem, so they don't have to take action on it. They believe that narcotics problem and money laundering problem is a problem that should be solved by the police, that other entities doesn't have a role on it. So who are the people actually organizing the money laundering well, Daniel has interviewed a few of those whilst they sit in jail. Well, they're all type. I mean, I I do interviews in prisons with money launders and there's a small, big, I mean, there are very professional guys. There are also, that are use very, very basic models. So, I mean, this is a huge economy that produced nearly 2,000 tons of cocaine. And I mean, also, I mean, a lot of towns are illegal gold mining, so... So we don't have a unique or universal type of individuals or fixers for money laundry, just like each region, each organization 
And what I found is that there are some guys that became specialists on it and they provide the services. I mean, each money launder, launder provides services to different clients. I mean, those are the bigger, the biggest key players on money laundry. I mean, they create the companies, they create the system, they create on it. And anybody that needs the services, they provide the services and they, they pay a fee for it. For it. So, so the, list, the, the list will be very, very large because they use anything that they, can, they, they can't. It's not just that specific from one business or one type. Of course, there are more evident or more visible economies like gold, as I mentioned, cattle, but there's also the less visible that I believe are very, very important, like private security companies, uh, low firms, uh, low buffets. I don't know what's the word you use in English, but the guys that provide legal services also are very rele- relevant. Technological companies that provide uh, information systems. I mean, that's what, 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 what uh, doctors, dentists, I mean, anything can work for money laundry. So before we shift our focus, let me tell you what happened to Messi, as we've been calling him. He was arrested along with over 100 other alleged Clandel Golfer members during a countrywide raid as part of Operation Agamemnon, which we'll talk about in a lot more detail in the final episode. Messi's now serving an 11-year prison sentence. Segovia, a town in the northeast of Antioquia. For hundreds of years, indigenous Colombians and others have worked the network of tunnels chiseling away at the rocks searching for a metal that has been a marker of wealth for millennia, gold. I want to tell you the story of one man who worked these mines. His name was Andreas Bedoya. According to the Toronto Star, he was a man with no enemies, no debts, and no links to armed groups. And yet, to Clandel Golfo, he was a legitimate target. Why? Because he was a gold miner. And so it was that at nine o'clock in the evening, there was a knock at the door. Bedoya opened the door to find a teenager who simply raised his gun and shot Andreas in the head in front of his pregnant wife. A few days later, in the early hours of the morning, a WhatsApp message appeared on the phones of other miners working for the same company as Andreas Bedoya, and it said the following. People of Segovia, on behalf of Autodefensas Gaitanista of Colombia, we have made decisions to implement a gun plan for all those thieves, rapists, toads, and those who do not obey and continue to work for Mr. Julio Erazo. This is just one example of the violence conducted by Clandel Golfo so that they can extract extortion payments from miners, whether they work for huge multinational companies like Andreas Bedoya or work as artisanal miners gold panning in the rivers of Colombia. And then there is the link between cocaine and gold. For decades, it's been an easy way to launder that dirty money. The profits are so high that former president Juan Manuel Santos said that today criminal mining brings more money to criminal groups to guerrilla groups, to mafias, than drug trafficking. Here's Daniel Rico again. Gold is very, very, very important. It's not important. It's very, very, very important for 
for any criminal organization. Just put it in numbers. Colombia produced, we estimate, at 86% of the gold that is exported to other countries, mostly the United States and Arab countries and Europe. It doesn't have a legal track. When we overlap, how much gold was registered as an export and how much gold was produced legally in the country, there's a huge gap. There's then the then there's the question. Okay, what, what this uh, additional gold that is 86 percent, where did it come from? I mean, it was produced illegally in Colombia. It was brought to the country uh, by contraband, produced in Venezuela, Brazil, and came to the country, or it's fake gold. I mean, it means that the same uh, pound of gold is exported one, more than once, or actually it's just fake, fake uh, a facade of 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 gold export that actually there's no gold going out it's just only the money coming coming in what i found is that all is true i mean we found examples that everything is going on i mean it's uh it's a lot of contraband it's a lot of illegal but it's also a lot of fake reports on, on gold and then we have very low controls for gold experts i mean and actually i will say that actually we provide a lot of benefits for gold experts in colombia uh, using free trade zones this has become a very secure channel. It is very, very low risk. And, and then we have to talk about free trade zones. But the best way to, to, to clean the money, I mean, with very, very slow effort, is doing money laundry with gold. I mean, the reason is that you can bring a lot of money back into the country. And we have multiple cases in free trade zones in Cali, near the Pacific. I mean, we're talking about billions of Colombian pesos or hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars that one single company was able to, to, to bring into the country in cash and using gold. So there are multiple typologies and the way how gold gets involved on the money laundry of, 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 of narcotics. But I want to highlight that the Colombian legislation is very, very weak in controlling the exports of gold. So that's one of the reasons that it's become very, very attractive. And the gold has a value on its own. So, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's an issue of incentive and expectation. So, so moving gold is very, very, very profitable for those economies. What makes gold fundamentally attractive is that not only is it incredibly valuable, it's also portable and largely untraceable. Gold itself is not an illegal substance like cocaine, which makes trying to identify what is illegally mined and what isn't pretty difficult. And so laundering drug money through gold is really quite simple. And that's why organized criminal groups like it. Yeah, it's very simple. Uh, drug dealers and people that need to bring cash back, they just bought uh, an amount, on a specific amount of gold. For example, I don't know, 10 pounds of gold. Then they send it as an expert to Panama. Then they use the same pounds of gold and they get back a couple million dollars for that expert they by contraband they bring in the same gold and they export the same the same pounds of gold again to the same uh, and they repeat this carousel i mean the same amount of gold is exported one twice three times and bring back into the country by contraband also they they bring a lot of contraband of gold from venezuela and from brazil that they pay in cash in the in a black market without any register or any track of it because this gold is coming from illegal gold minings and they bring it into Colombia and they export it uh, legally uh, so they are able to bring that money into the financial flow in the international banking flow and then the money is clean is 
it has been already laundered. You see, the intrinsic value of gold is high. It's both a commodity and a monetary instrument, and it can basically be used as a medium of exchange anywhere in the world. It provides anonymity, and its form can be altered. Gold is particularly susceptible to things like multiple invoicing, ghost shipping, and other techniques. In 2016, Colombia exported 64 tonnes of gold. Yet according to the Colombian Mining Association, large-scale legal mining operations produced only 8 tonnes. It's this massive disparity where criminal groups like Clan del Golfo operate. According to Global Financial Integrity, among the primary factors driving misinvoicing and trade fraud, specifically within the Colombian gold market, are illegal mining and illegally sourced gold. So what about the illegal gold mining itself? Now this might surprise you, it's estimated that illegal gold mining operations generate over $2 billion a year. That's more than three times that of the infamous Colombian cocaine industry. And it's a much safer market to involve yourself in than illicit drugs. This is Luis Fernando Trejos Rosero from the Universidad del Norte Department of Political Science and International Relations. In a context like Colombia, in which, due to pressure from the United States, there is often institutional action against illicit crops, gold rent appears as a very lucrative alternative to make up for the profits that are lost due to institutional actions against the cocaine economy. And gold, like any type of good that is traded on the international market, has moments in which its price skyrockets. This also encourages the armed actors to promote or participate directly in the search for gold. Now, Andreas Bedoya, the miner who was killed by Clan del Golfo, was an example of how groups like Clan del Golfo operate in the gold mining space. Fear, violence and extortion or rents, as Luis Fernando just explained. Despite the fact that these organizations have a national presence or presence in multiple departments, their behavior is differentiated according to the characteristics and conditions of each region or subregion. I will give you an example. In the Sur de Bolívar, which is a territory in which there is a lot of informal gold mining, the Clan del Golfo has a mafia peace pact or agreement with the ELN structures that have been operating in that region since 2018. And that Mafia Peace Pact consists in that there is no fighting or armed aggression between them and there has been a sharing of the rents that exist in the territory. And one of those rents that is very significant is gold mining, while in the Sur de Córdoba, Clan del Golfo until recently waged a war against a dissidence of that organization called Los Caparros, not only for the control of the illegal mining, but for the entire territory in which there is also a presence of illicit crops and formal large-scale mining. And then how these formal mining companies will be trying to seek some link with this organization to ensure governance or order in the territory. So, in some cases, there is a competition for access to these rents. 
But in other cases, what we see is that there are agreements for the harmonious exploitations of the resources in the territories, as is the case of Sur de Bolívar. So this access to rents, or extortion, is what drives Candel Golfo's involvement in illegal gold mining. It's a relationship a rentier relationship in terms of co-opting rents that come out of that illegal economy. But that's not their core illegal economic activity. El Clan del Golfo is a large logistical operator for the export of cocaine hydrochloride that provides services not only to Colombian drug traffickers, but also to drug traffickers from other countries, especially Mexicans. And what happened is that in territories in which they have a permanent presence, such as Sur de Córdoba and Sur de Bolívar, there is also illegal mining. And that's why they end up involved in this illegal activity or in this illegal economy. So despite Clan del Golfo being predominantly specialists in drug trafficking, it's more controlling an illicit source of income because you'd rather someone else didn't. Well, what you should bear in mind is that the illegal armed groups manage a portfolio of illicit income and in this sense, by controlling a territory, all economic activities, whether legal or illegal, that take place in that territory must pay taxes to that armed organization. That is to say, pay extortion in exchange for security. When this income, whether legal or illegal, is very lucrative, they displace the community or the other organizations that is administering the income and take direct control of it. And that's a really important point. Groups across Colombia, whether it's Clan del Golfo, ELN or the FARC dissident groups, organized crime has evolved to be pragmatic, whether it's the legal or illicit economies. So let's hear from Jorge Mantilla, the Director of Conflict Dynamics and Organized Violence at the Ideas for Peace Foundation and a member of the GI Network. We heard from him in the last episode. I think that the main business today in terms of organized crime in Colombia and more so in Latin America is about governing, creating arrangements, creating rules. This is related to extortion. This is related to mining. This is related to public space, regulating public space, regulating transportation, regulating commerce. So, of course, there's drug trafficking, but there's also human trafficking. There's also arms trafficking. So every activity they can control, and the businesses control territory, control populations, they're going to, you know, get profit out of it. So now we move on to the environmental impact of illegal gold mining, and that impact is huge. In a cruel twist of fate, many of the gold deposits are located in the areas of high biodiversity, and they are quite irreplaceable. Speaking to the Miami Herald, a commander in the police's national unit against illegal mining described the mining landscape as a moonscape that will be without vegetation for a hundred years, even longer if they leave the land contaminated with mercury. And so that brings me on to the use of mercury. 
Now, mercury is a naturally occurring element, but exposure to mercury, even a little, can cause serious health problems because it's a neurotoxin and it can really damage your nervous, digestive and immune systems. Not to mention your lungs, kidneys, skin, eyes. This stuff can kill you. Now, since the Californian gold rush in the 1800s, mercury has been used to extract gold. It's cheap and easy. But remember, this is a highly toxic chemical. Here's Marcina Hunter, who is the thematic lead on extractives and illicit flows at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. When you mine for gold, whether it's alluvial or hard rock mining, you have um, what we call ore that comes out of that. And so that's rocks or mud or whatever you have. What you do is you take the mercury and you mix it in with that sludge. And that creates what's called a mercury amalgam. And what you can do then is you take a cloth and you roll the amalgam into a ball and you squeeze out as much of the water and mercury as you can. And what's left is this little ball that we call a gold amalgam. And then you take that ball and you burn it and the mercury and other impurities evaporate into the air, leaving what's called a gold sponge and it leaves the gold behind. And then you can take that gold sponge and melt it down into little dore or ingots, um, just little pieces of gold that then you can go and take and sell to buyers or buyers will just take possession of it from the mine sites or wherever it was processed. And then the gold can easily move down supply chains from there. And here lies a major problem. The concentration of mercury is so high that waterways are laced with it, which means that the fish that occupy these same waters gobble up traces of the chemical where it becomes concentrated in their bodies. The fish are then caught by members of the local community who have lived alongside the river for centuries. And so these fish with these high levels of toxic chemical are then eaten, leading to serious health conditions. And so the impact on local communities is significant. Food and waterways can be poisoned by mercury, and then the deforestation can be at such a level that it could be decades before anything grows again. Yes, deforestation is a major issue. Um, a lot of deforestation takes place in order to clear land for mining to take place. Other issues can include polluting or diverting waterways. Mercury is one way this can happen, but other chemicals or diverting the waterways can also cause problems for communities and the environment. Also, in violence um, in Latin America, you have conflict with indigenous groups, and there have been incidences reported of massacres or um, violence against indigenous groups that have confronted illegal miners or tried to get them to stop their activities. And so in addition to generally financing criminality and undermining good governance and rule of law, and so illegal mining and the criminal flows that stem from it can have a plethora of negative impacts. So it's not just the environmental damage caused by illegal gold mining, it's also the violence that armed criminal groups commit against local communities. Here's Luis Fernando again. 
pero obviamente yo te voy a dar un caso, un caso. I'm going to give you a case, a case that has been somewhat emblematic in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, in an area called La Lengüeta. There are tensions there between indigenous communities and also settlers and a post-paramilitary group that controls the territory because of a small illegal gold mining operation in that territory. They have exercised systematic violence against some leaders who seek to harmonize the exploitation of this vein by removing the illegal actor opposing their participation in this type of exploitation. In the Sur de Córdoba, in the El Alacran mine, it seems that a private company was also trying to hire a post-paramilitary group to remove a leader who has ended up being very annoying to the extent that he is very empowered and has used legal actions to stop operations of the company, which is a multinational company. And El Espectador, in a report about that territory, narrates the case of this kind of subcontracting of a paramilitary group to exercise violence against this leader. So let's go back to Andreas Bedoya, the miner who was killed by Clandel Golfo. He was just one of a number that were killed or wounded by the group during those few weeks. Late last year, the GI launched the Global Assassination Monitor, and we featured an episode on it earlier this year, which you can go back and listen to. But it documents targeted contract killings around the world, and Colombia has the ignominious position of being in the top three. So why is this? Well, we know that across the world, organized criminal groups use targeted violence and assassinations as a form of criminal governance. Here's Ana Paula Oliveira, who was fundamental in the creation of the Global Assassination Monitor here at the GI. Of all continents in America, presented the highest number of recorded hits, or sicariato, as you say in Spanish. And countries in the region face similar problems deriving from illicit economies, such as drug trafficking, illegal logging, illegal mining, as well as criminal governance through extortion and assassinations. However, the reason why um, this phenomenon is high in some of the countries in the region might differ. And in the case of Colombia, this became particularly striking due to the high number of killings of local community members, including social leaders. And this happened even despite the levels of violent crime seems to be declining in the country in the past years. And one of the main um, reasons that has been attributed to this rise in the, in the killings of community members is uh, problems deriving from the implementation of peace agreement policies. And despite there being messages like the WhatsApp messages that were sent to the miners in Segovia or the pamphlets that are distributed around the community, finding the hitman is one thing, but finding the mastermind behind any assassination is really, really hard. And those most at risk in Colombia from targeted assassinations by armed groups are social leaders, the very people who try to stand up to them. Organized crime groups have responded violently to these communities as they see social leaders as a threat to their criminal governance and their illicit interest behind the drug trafficking. So specifically to land defenders and indigenous peoples in Colombia, those are disproportionately at risk in the context of conflict and illicit economies. Organized crime and armed groups operating in the country 
seek to use the land for drug trafficking, but also illegal mining, illegal logging, and so-called uh, development projects. The exploitation of these rich resources often take place in indigenous or Afro-Colombian territories, and that is per se a risk that causes not only environmental crime but to to you know the the threat and the harassment and even killings of these environmental leaders. I think it's also important to bear in mind that the killings are just the tip of the iceberg. Um, the little violence often occur in the way broader context of systematic threats against defenders, including the distribution of pamphlets with names, intimidations, and even sexual violence. To add, I think, weak institutions that occasionally punish the gunmen, the hitmen, but do not prosecute the mastermind of these crimes, contribute to the perpetuation of this culture of impunity that enables that assassinations are continued to be used as a method, increasing the risk that these people suffer. Okay, so there was a lot of information in this episode. We've looked at Clandel Golfo and its international connections, cocaine trafficking, money laundering techniques, illegal gold mining and assassinations. One of the reasons I wanted to fly through all of these different things is to show how connected it all is. Messi was an example of how money gained through the international illicit drug market can seep into everyday life. From seemingly normal companies being used as a front to launder dirty money, to luxury items, sport, livestock, real estate, music, it was all touched by these illicit proceeds. And then you have the corruption of politics to gain contracts to launder more dirty money the hijacking of gold mining and the extortion of workers, and using violence as a form of control. That is organised crime. That's what it does to people and society. Coming up in the final episode of Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel. The Operation Agamemnon Net begins to close around Otoniel. So at the end, at the very end of the days of Otoniel, he was just kind of separated uh, from the group. He didn't have communication. He, did, he was not able to perform command and control a dog that became a hero, and then a celebrity sent Otoniel into a rage. To me, that was a sign of the utter insanity of the war on drugs. When you get to the stage of you are hiring professional assassins to try and kill a dog like it was Charles de Gaulle and it's Day of the Jackal or something. And what comes next? They are fragmenting the groups, so they are affecting the security of the communities. They are fragmenting these groups, but not eliminating them. I hope you enjoyed part two of Clan del Golfo, The Fall of Otoniel. The third and final part will be available in early April. I'd like to thank Daniel Rico, Luis Fernando Trejos Rosero, Marcina Hunter, Ana Paula Oliveira, Jorge Mantilla, and Toby Muse. Please could you rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, and of course share it around. For other podcasts and videos or research into global organized crime, head over to the Global Initiative website, which is globalinitiative.net, where you can find loads of stuff. We're also across social media. Just search for the Global Initiative and you'll find us. Thanks again for listening to Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. 
I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>